Well, good morning and welcome to Foster Source. Today is a special day for us. We have a brand new training that we are super excited about. I'm Renee Bernhard, the founder and executive director of Foster Source. And I actually happen to be a big fan of the TikTok as well, everyone. If you are not on TikTok, you are missing out. My TikTok stream has a lot of runners in it, a lot of Taylor Swift, because you all know I'm a Swifty. And it also has a lot about foster care and child welfare, nonprofits, etc. Today's speaker is Dr. Christine Gibson. I found her and have been following her on TikTok for many, many months now. Her handle on TikTok is at TikTok Trauma Doc. And I love what she teaches and how much I've learned from her so far. She has an incredible concept she calls informations. And she also talks a lot about polyvagal theory, which is something we haven't um, featured yet at Foster Source. So I reached out to Dr. Gibson, who has said we are welcome to call her Christina this morning. And this is our first international speaker as well. She is joining us from Canada. So today is a great day all around. Uh, Dr. Gibson, we're thrilled to have you. Thank you so much for being here today. Take it away. Awesome. Well, I'm super, ha super happy to be here, Renee, and it's nice to meet all of you guys. Um, totally fine if you're keeping your cameras off. Like we want to make sure everyone's feeling comfortable um, in the training. At some point, um, I'll ask for you know raise hands and and a voice. But um, it's 100% up to you as to whether you participate in that end of it. But it will be fun if you do. Um, so let me just start by sharing my PowerPoint. Okay, so um, for me on Zoom, I kind of end up with like five different cameras off to my right hand side. So the easiest thing is to kind of turn it into the smallest square. So I disappear or the one, the one square. Um, and then that way you'll be able to see the slides a bit better. But if you hover right above uh, Christina's picture, you'll see little boxes. If you choose the one on the far left or second from the left, that will hide most of those pictures. Thanks, Renee. Um, so as Renee mentioned, I'm Christine and I'm super happy for anyone to call me that. I'm not a very formal physician um, and I'm a family doctor. I have been for just over 20 years now and I did a lot of inpatient practice. Um, and while I did that, I created a residency program in health equity. So the idea was how can we get good quality healthcare to people who have been historically underserved? So most of my students that graduated through the program that I created went on to work with immigrants and refugees, uh, to work with people who were um, street associated or unhoused in any kind of situation, people who use drugs and other substances, um, First Nations, uh, Indigenous Canadians, so people who just have been historically underserved by the health system. So, you know, equity and um, an understanding of the structural and social reasons why there's inequity is something that really has interested me for a long time and, you know, kind of looking at the root causes. So 
when I started digging around at the root causes for a lot of what I was seeing in primary care, I unearthed the very glaring fact uh, that trauma was actually underneath a lot of the physical and mental ill health that I was seeing. And I'm sure you know a lot about trauma and ACEs and all that kind of thing. So I'm not going to get into the the basics of it. What Renee and I thought we would do today was get into some of the theories that are a little bit more um, uh, nuanced, like things that not everyone had heard of. Like, frankly, I had never heard of this stuff until six years ago. And, you know, I thought I was working with um, you know, marginalized populations for so long. And there was just so much I hadn't understood. So we'll get into some of these more like esoteric theories, but if you guys have any questions at all about anything, please don't hesitate, pop it in the chat. And I would welcome any of the moderators to interrupt me once a question comes up. Um, super welcoming to questions. So a little bit about me and just what I do with disclosures on every talk that I give is just say, I don't have any conflicts of interest to declare. I don't get any funding um, from any pharmaceutical companies or any organizations whatsoever. I do run an international nonprofit that gets family medicine to um, resource poor countries. And I am a founder of a cooperative here in Calgary where we are trying to expand what we consider healing. So healing isn't just visiting doctors and getting medicines. Healing is also, you know, singing and healing is yoga and healing is community. And we're just really trying to expand that definition. Um, as Renee mentioned, I am on TikTok and through that I've um, been give, granted a book deal. So I've written the first draft of the Modern Trauma Toolkit, which will be coming out next year. Um, my academic affiliations are through the University of Calgary and I'm in the departments of both family medicine and psychiatry. Um, and as of last month, I'm a doctoral candidate uh, in the UK. So that's me looking fancy on paper, but I'm very, very casual. So please feel free to interrupt, call me Christine, reach out on socials. Um, so first thing that I wanted to acknowledge is that trauma isn't something that's just happening now. So they're calling the pandemic a mass trauma event that basically all beings have been through trauma at this point. Um, but I don't think that this is anything new. And if you look kind of evolutionarily speaking, all mammals have trauma responses built into our brains. So one of the things I teach, and we might do it another day if we, if we choose to do some somatic work together, is tremoring. So if you've been around a dog or if you have a dog in the home, you might notice that when the dog gets stressed out, what they do is they shake their body from head to tail and they kind of let the thing out of their system. So some dogs are prone to anxiety and they're always going to be a bit jittery, but many dogs, they can literally shake it off when they go through something that seems like it's a threat. And once they're reassured and they're feeling safe again, they will shake their body and they'll go about their day like this thing didn't really affect them that much. Horses do it too, in, in case you can see the horse icon on the screen. Um, so mammals have been adapted through evolution to be able to handle trauma. And it's something that we've always been able to do. So 
through some of the examples using polyvagal theory, I'll explain how this trauma response that was built into our brains doesn't really work in modern times. So if you think about humans thousands of years ago, the kinds of traumas that we encountered might be a forest fire or an earthquake, some kind of natural disaster where if we ran, we could outrun the issue. Um, another thing that we might encounter is some kind of predator. So, you know, um, in certain countries that might look like a bear or a tiger or a cougar. So we might run into these predators that um, we were pretty weak and pretty slow compared to them. And so we might have to try to fight something off. So these flight and fight reflexes came into our brains from a long, long time ago where it would take like a couple of minutes to get away from the problem or not. If you didn't win, if you didn't fight and flight well enough, you didn't get away from the problem. So the fight and flight part of our brain was very adaptive for the kinds of stuff that we would run into when human brains were kind of under construction. And we haven't adapted to modern traumas. And so we have a lot of really interesting built-in mechanisms that we can harness and leverage that do exist within our brain. Um, but one very interesting thing that I'm sure a lot of you have heard before is that the trauma response is a reflex and it happens at the level of the brainstem, kind of where we do reflex things like walking and breathing. Um, lots of things that we don't really have to think about. It's just programs that run in the background. And unfortunately, when we are stuck in a trauma response and our amygdalas are firing away, we get stuck in fight and flight or we get stuck in freeze at the level below the thinking brain. And these reflex responses just show up in the day. And we'll talk more about what those look like. They just show up in the day without us necessarily having conscious control of them. So a lot of what I do with the patients that I see is working at the subconscious and the body-based level, which is the second thing we'll talk about. So this is kind of my uh, framework for the talk today is to speak a little bit about those brain responses, where they come from. And given that a lot of them aren't cognitive or using your thinking brain, what options do you have? And then the second thing is to kind of break down those options in terms of top down, which is thinking brain options and bottom up options and what those are and what they look like. Cause they're not always things that people have heard about. So I'm going to pause here and see if it, there's any questions so far. Feel free to unmute yourselves or type them in the chat, but nothing so far. Okay, great. So I'll pause every once in a while, but feel free to kind of pop questions in any time. And if I'm going too fast or too slow, please let me know to, to, to direct in that uh, as well. I try to speak pretty slowly in case there's anyone who's, you know, English is a second language and I'm using terms that you don't do or don't know, please ask me to explain them. I try to do it, but sometimes I miss something. Okay, so the first thing that I'm going to do is to go through this infographic. And again, if you've got thumbnails of videos on the far right hand side, 
just go up to the top and select the minus, which will kind of flatten all of those thumbnails. So on that far right side is my infographic of the polyvagal theory. And this is in your folder. Um, I've got this and the toolkit um, available to you as a download. Excellent. That means these things are in the handouts tab of the classroom, and we'll show you where that is at the end when we walk you through for your certificate. Awesome. Thank you, Renee. Um, so the polyvagal theory is something that happened in a lab. So Dr. Porges is the guy who came up with it. He's the one who created the name, and he's the one who did the research. And interestingly, his research was basic science research. So he started studying the nervous system in the human body, and he was doing that in a lab. So with participants who would come into a lab environment, he wasn't studying people in the real world, and he wasn't studying it as a doctor or a psychologist. He was studying it purely from the biomedical perspective. What does the nervous system do? And so the, it's called the autonomic nervous system because it's automatic. Like I was saying, a lot of these things happen at the level below the conscious mind. So they're reflex responses. And it was always taught to us. And certainly this is what I learned in medical school over 20 years ago, is that we have two nervous systems. We have the sympathetic nervous system, which is the one I described as fight and flight. And so in the infographic, that's the one in red at the bottom. And it's in fight and flight when it's in overdrive. So when you have a purely sympathetic nervous system response and the other nervous system is offline altogether, you're in fight and flight. And what that looks like makes sense because when you think about fight and flight, the body is trying to get away from the danger. So fight and flight shows up in humans like muscle tension because you're wanting to run away or fight off the problem. So think of how many days you finish the day and think, oh my gosh, my shoulders are up at my neck and you know my calves are sore. And you're thinking, well, I didn't do anything physical. Maybe not. But did you spend your day in fight and flight? Because that's going to give you that extra muscle tone. And so I've had some patients who don't do a lot of physical exertion at all. And I look at their body and their muscles are so toned. Like one patient, her calf muscles look like she is a bodybuilder. And that is because of childhood trauma. She's been stuck in that fight and flight response all day, every day for more than 60 years. So muscle tone is one part of that. Some people will notice that their hearts are pounding very quickly. So the medical term for that is tachycardia or high heart rate. And some people will say to me, gosh, I can feel my heart is pounding out of my chest. It just is really um, noticeable. So that um, heavy heartbeat feeling, and sometimes it's beating very quickly or even you're noticing, I think I'm skipping beats. It just feels really intense. So that intense heart rate is a part of that fight and flight system. And that is your heart trying to send energy to your muscles so that you can fight or flight. 
So when you think about all of these responses that show up in the different nervous systems, they make sense from a physiologic perspective because the goal of your body is to get away from the threat. And so your body wants to use your heart to send muscle, uh, to send energy to the places that need it, like your muscles. Um, it sends a little bit to the brain, but not a ton. And so sometimes when people are really locked into fight and flight, they might even be shaking because there's so much energy going into the, the outer periphery, those, those muscles that need to do something. So you might find yourself shaking. And in a kiddo, this might show up as restlessness. So like um, a leg that's going up and down. And many times people are misdiagnosed with attention deficit disorder when it's actually a nervous system that's locked into fight and flight. And so when you give them the stimulants, it, it actually does the opposite because they were already hyperstimulated. So that's a little bit about the sympathetic nervous system. Um, I might just see if there's any questions about it before I keep moving on. I found that so interesting when you talked about how the dog shakes and can like shake it out. It, is there any tie to us? For, can we shake it out? We absolutely can. It's actually my very last slide is an invitation to learn more about it, but let, I'll just briefly mention it. So TRE is either called trauma releasing exercise or tension releasing exercise. And it was designed by a social worker um, who's, I think he's in like Arizona or something now, but he used to work throughout the world in conflict zones. And what he noticed is that the people who would naturally shake after something that was very dangerous, they didn't get as much PTSD as the people who didn't naturally shake. And so like for me, the only time I've naturally done it is when I was in a very scary car accident. And I remember sitting on the curb and I was shaking so hard that people were, you know, asking me if I was okay. And my whole body was just like trembling. And that response is totally natural in humans. And so what this social worker did, his name was Dr. Berselli. He found a way that we could learn how to tremor and almost everyone I've taught how to do it is capable of doing it. I even put it up on TikTok because I just find these things need to get to more people who need it. It needs to be more accessible. And almost everybody who did the three TikTok series, they could learn how to do it just from watching the videos. So oh, awesome. with okay. my book, I will be putting up a longer YouTube video with the entire thing up on a on a page for the people who purchased the book. And if we choose to do a second um, session together, I can absolutely talk more about it. So yeah, yeah. people absolutely tremor. And what it does awesome. is it releases the tone that builds up in your muscles, which is really cool. That's amazing. And I meant to say this earlier, first dibs to host a training about your book when your book comes out. We love doing that. And we purchased the book for the foster parents. So we'd love to have you back and talk about your book. Fantastic. That's awesome. Um, so when people think of danger, a lot of people think fight and flight. But what Dr. Porges's research showed is that we have a different response to danger and it kicks in 
when the fight and flight system is overwhelmed. So if you think of in the animal kingdom, one animal trying to outrun the other. So the prey is trying to outrun the predator and it just doesn't work. Like for example, I live in Calgary, so I'm in the mountains all the time. I know full well that a human can't outrun a bear and bears can even climb trees, which I was really sad to learn. <laughs> so there's gonna come a time where you as a smaller being can't outrun the big thing. Kiddos feel like this all the time. They feel very powerless. They feel very helpless, especially when the predator is somebody who should be looking after them. So when that happens, the human body is designed to go into the low activity state. So that on my infographic, that's the one in green. And Dr. Poor just called this dorsal vagal. And I'm just gonna ask if anybody knows why, because it's, it's a really interesting explanation. Has anyone heard of this, the dorsal vagal response? Okay. Well, I'm gonna that is what we're hearing. <laughs> That's great. Well, I'm excited to teach you something new because honestly, when I learned this, it changed my life and it changed the way that I looked at people in the world, myself included. <laughs> so these two nervous system states are things that all humans have the capacity to, you know, bring out when we're feeling danger. So when our fight and flight system is exhausted, we go into the dorsal vagal and it is a branch of the parasympathetic nervous system. So we used to think historically that we had two branches. Sympathetic was anything to do with mo motion or movement. So anytime you move your body, you're using your sympathetic nervous system. Your heartbeat is sympathetic. The um, inhale of your breath is sympathetic. Anytime you are moving your body, so you're cooking in the kitchen, you're walking the dog, you're playing with the kids, that's your sympathetic nervous system too. So we need our sympathetic nervous system. It is not the villain here. We're not trying to kick it out the door. We just don't want it to be an overdrive. The parasympathetic nervous system was thought to be the second nervous system when we sometimes call it rest and digest nervous system or calm and connect nervous system. And what Dr. Poor just discovered is that there's actually two branches. So the branch that has to do with danger is the one in green on the infographic and it's called the dorsal vagal branch. Dorsal means back. And so it's your, the part of your vagus nerve that goes down the back body. And when it's in overdrive because of danger, it sends a shutdown response. And what that looks like is immobility paralysis. So if you think about an animal, if it's trying to outrun the predator, um, you might call it playing possum. So this animal would just lay down and pretend it's dead and hope the danger goes away. And interestingly, when you're in that dorsal vagal response, your pain sensors aren't as active. So you don't even necessarily feel the pain from the danger. In a human, that looks like 
dissociation. So that feeling of floating above your body and kind of looking down on it and just being super disconnected, which lots of kids learn when they're in danger. That's the dorsal vagal branch. So you've probably thought this looks like a danger response when you're really disconnected, but it was Dr. Porges who came up with the biology of where it comes from. And so what this looks like is a very slow heart rate. Your muscles feel floppy and you just feel numb in general. Like it looks like I can't stop watching Netflix or I can't even get out of bed today. And a lot of people get blamed for, oh, you just don't have motivation or maybe this is depression, but sometimes it could be depression. And sometimes it's overwhelm of the sympathetic nervous system. And then the nervous system that kicks in is the dorsal branch of the parasympathetic, which shuts the body down. And I feel so many people have a ton of guilt and shame and just feeling really badly about themselves when they get stuck in this dorsal vagal branch because the sympathetic branch of do, 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 restless, agitated, go, 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 can't turn the brain off. That is more socially acceptable than laying in bed. I can't do anything. I can't go to school today. Even the thought of it just makes me nauseated. Um, everything hurts. I just feel really, really bad. And I can't say why society does not appreciate and acknowledge this threat response to the same extent that we do the high activity branch. So I think I'll stop there because that was a big info dump and just check in with questions again. I mean, I can really relate to that because when I'm overwhelmed as a mom and as an adoptive mom, that is when I go scroll TikTok for hours. <laughs> Yeah. You do feel numb and I do feel guilty about it. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, maybe that's just my, my mind helping me cope. Absolutely. Yeah. So like watching Netflix, watching TikTok post pandemic has been very, very popular because people are, um, feeling really overwhelmed by the state of the world. So Initially, they were overwhelmed by the danger of the virus, and now they're overwhelmed by all this conflicting information and confusion. Um, there's just been a lot of reasons for us to be collectively overwhelmed. So for us to be collectively in that high tone, stressed out, can't turn your brain off, can't sleep, or low tone, can't move, can't get things done. I'm just going to disconnect from my reality for a little while. Cause it just seems like too much. Someone says, what's the other path called other than dorsal? Yes. That's where I'm going to get to. Yay. So that is our blue window and it is the ventral vagal branch. So if dorsal is back, ventral is front. And so our vagus nerve is the longest nerve in our body. Um, Resma Menachem, he does a lot of um, body-based therapy online. 
and he's doing a lot of um, kind of deconstructing racism using body-based practices. He calls it somatic abolitionism. So he calls it the soul nerve. So it's the nerve that has to do with a lot of those subconscious, below the thinking brain responses. And our vagus nerve, when it's in good shape, the dorsal branch is just sending signals up to our brain saying, hey brain, this is what your body's up to today. Um, your feet are moving cause you're walking on a sidewalk and it's a little bit cold. So like my, my toes are cold right now and you're kind of hungry cause you didn't eat enough for breakfast. Okay. That's the state of the body today. And that's the job of your vagus nerve is to basically send signals up to your brain and say, Hey, this is what your body's up to. So we call those afferent fibers, which is like sending signals to the brain. So only when it's overwhelmed does the brain send this shutdown signal backwards. Most of the signal of the vagus nerve from the body is upwards. But the vagus nerve doesn't just go from the neck down, which is that dorsal vagal branch. The vagus nerve also goes into the face, which is the ventral vagal branch. And this is the branch of the parasympathetic nervous system. So the calm nervous system that's in charge when you are not feeling any danger at all. And the way that we interact in the environment, instead of being high tone agitated or low tone shutdown, when we're in that blue zone and our ventral vagus system is in charge, the part of the vagus nerve that's connected to our face relates to vocal tone. So I'm really careful with the tone of my voice. The tone of my voice will set those mirror neurons off in the other person's brain. So mirror neurons are like, well, how can I reflect what I'm seeing in the world? And kids are really good at this. So if we are screaming or if we're just really, really quiet and can't be heard, the kiddo will pick up on that energy through the mirror neurons. And when we're both in ventral vagus, it's our tone of voice that's really important to maintain that connection between humans. And one of the ways that we kind of check out the world to say, is this person safe or not? Is we listen to the voice and vocal prosody is the name of what that looks like. The safest kind of voice is the sing song voice. So a very, very flat voice when you're talking like this and you just don't have any inflections at all and your tone is very, very one tone, that doesn't sound safe to human ears. What sounds safest to human ears is when you're kind of going up and you're going down and you're, we call it a sing song or a melodic voice. Lots of moms and dads naturally do it with babies. We kind of have this, um, cadence that's really slow and gentle. And we naturally go up and down on those hills and valleys. It turns out all human brains find this a very, very safe response. And our parasympathetic ventral vagus system kicks in when we hear that kind of vocal tone. Any questions about that? Okay, I'll get into ventral vagal a bit more. The other part of it that has to do with your vagus nerve in the face is 
listening. So listening to the sounds around you and facial expression. So one of the things that's been really hard with the pandemic is to not necessarily see facial expressions. We do express a lot with our eyes and our eyebrows. Don't get me wrong. That's a really key component to um, whether or not we feel safe in the world, but not seeing if somebody is smiling or frowning can be really hard. So I'm a huge proponent of mask wearing because I think it's really protective, but it does make things harder in terms of staying in that window of tolerance. Because if you can't decide if the people around you are safe, then you can end up in that fight and flight or freeze shutdown response. So that sense of safety is I'm looking at this person, I'm listening to their voice and I'm watching their facial expression. And that connection is what helps us stay in the calm body, which is the calm branch of our parasympathetic system. So in essence, the polyvagal theory says there's your one high tone movement branch of your system, but there's actually two low tone branches. One feels safe and one doesn't. And that's the vagus nerve into your face and the vagus nerve down into your body. So there's two different branches and that's why he calls it polyvagal. What do we think about that explanation? Does that explain some of what you experience in your body, what you experience in the kiddos, high tone and low tone stress responses? Uh, for me, absolutely. All I'm having is a wow response right now. I keep thinking, wow, that's amazing. And I, I was he I'm here because I have a kiddo that um, has reactive attachment disorder. And so many of these things are like, Oh my gosh, it's all what I need to know. But then I'm thinking, Holy crap. I've, I live in this all the time because of the trauma that I had in my childhood. And all of a sudden I'm going, it's not depression. It's actually this nervous system shutdown and pullback. And wow. That's all I can say is wow. <laughs> Someone else says, I don't have any questions, but this explains so much how I interact with my toddler and my infant. Sorry, whoever I interrupted, go ahead. No, no, keep, keep, uh, keep telling me what's going on in the chat. I can even pull up. Another, um, this is amazing. Wow. Okay. I mean, sometimes we just, uh, as foster parents, oftentimes as, as kin parents, we just need to feel validated. You know, like we are not the only one feeling like we are doing a terrible job or feeling like we're the only one for whom this is so hard. Absolutely. And we pathologize mental health system symptoms and say, oh my gosh, there's something wrong with you. You must be depressed. You must be anxious. When actually, when you're in situations from childhood trauma that's not been resolved, or you're watching someone you care about go through trauma, which is just as traumatic for the body, these responses are normal. They're protective. So a lot of people feel shame and guilt about something that's actually trying to protect you. So this is your nervous system's natural response to threat and danger. And when we say, gosh, there's something wrong with this person, they're so restless, or they just can't seem to get anything done. They don't show up to meetings. They just seem really disconnected. 
I mean, doctors will charge a person for not showing up or, you know, kiddos who are agitated in class will be said, like, there's something wrong with you. What if we just said, I wonder how your body is trying to protect you with this response? It's a very different question. And I think it's the right one to ask. Yeah. Someone says, that's what everyone says to me. You're depressed. You're down. You need to deal with that. And I would say also, like you mentioned before, our kids get diagnosed with ADHD left and right when that may, that may not be. The, the diagnosis of ADHD since the DSM three, like when they just became, what they started doing is starting at DSM three and then definitely four and five ramped it up. So that's the big book of psychiatry. It's like, tells us how to pathologize all the people, which I'll be, I'll be super upfront. I don't really believe in it because it was just a whole bunch of old white guys sitting in a room deciding, well, this is a cluster of traits that seems to go together. And there was no biological basis to it. And so what they started doing was they started adding more and more symptoms. And so eventually like, like if you go through a DSM checklist with anyone who's been through trauma, they come out on the other side with five different diagnoses, <laughs> some of them totally conflicting. So, um, yeah, I think it's a huge problem. What I think we need to do first is recognize, well, what is the trauma response start to respond to the trauma response as best we can, which is part two of my talk today. And once we've done enough with the complex trauma, see what symptoms are left and then decide if there's a diagnosis and a medication needed. So I just don't think we deal with the complex trauma enough and we don't understand this polyvagal system well enough that everyone ends up with five different diagnoses. Christine, what if um, you have children that are already on Concerta because they've been diagnosed with ADHD, but yet it's very clear from this that I think that it is a misdiagnosis. Um, what do you do at that point? I mean, you don't want to just take them off. So what do you start working with all the trauma stuff and then eventually maybe see if you can't pull back some at some point? Yeah, Jan, you've got it exactly right. So the same with medications for depression or anxiety. I don't tend to take my patients off of medications. What I do is say, maybe this medication is getting your nervous system into a space where your thinking brain can work. And when your thinking brain can work, then you can learn all these different tools that I've learned to help your nervous system come into that window of tolerance. So if you have so much high activity or low activity that your thinking brain is totally offline, many people do need a medication in order to learn the tools. And once you've learned the tools, then with physician guidance, because you often have to taper off these things, um, you could try to come off this stuff. So I've, I've taken tons of my patients off of medications. I'm really into deep prescribing, <laughs> but slowly, like if they're on an antidepressant, I will sometimes take six months to get them off it because there's a lot of withdrawal syndromes that people are not aware of. Yeah. And the other piece of this is, um, that I'm curious about is like for myself, um, I was just saying recently to somebody that I have a lot of 
lack of memory from my childhood. Like I can't remember things. I see people on Facebook that were my friends that talk about, you know, this and this and this. And I'm like, I don't remember it. It's awful. I also see my kiddos that had trauma that they can't remember anything. They can't remember things. They can't remember, you know, their chores. They can't remember, you know, things that are going on. They can't remember yesterday. So I'm thinking to myself, oh my goodness. First of all, I never thought of my life as going through trauma. I just thought I was in a dysfunctional family. So now I'm starting to see, oh, well, dysfunctional family trauma. Okay. They correlate. That's probably why I'm not remembering. So I'm just asked, is that true? Is that one of the signs and symptoms is lack of memory? Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Um, so, and like even this brain fog that's showing up with long COVID, I actually think of that as a trauma response too, because when you're in any of these trauma responses, so the red sympathetic zone or the green dorsal vagal zone, your cognitive brain goes offline. I don't know if any of you guys have seen Dan Siegel's hand um, theory of the brain. We'll pull it up and put it in the chat. Okay. Yeah. He does a really great video where he describes like flipping your lid. It's great for adolescents because it helps you understand how they like, just don't seem to think. But the issue is when your emotional brain is taking up a lot of the energy, that's like in the center of your brain, it's your limbic system. And when it's getting the energy and when your amygdala is, that's your fight and flight center. When I, I think of it like a fire hall, so when you, when you've got all the fire alarms going off and the firemen are like, okay, let's go get, put this fire out. There is no space for anything else to be going on. It's, it's the highest volume is these messages of threat and danger. And all of the energy is going into the emotions that are showing up and this danger response, like I must be in danger. I'm getting all these fire alarms. And that's where all your energy goes. And you just don't have enough time to send energy to the thinking brain. So when Dan Siegel's hand model, and we can certainly do this more if we have another talk in the future, um, what, in case you have me in your little window, he shows that the outer layer of your brain, which is the neocortex or the thinking brain, when your emotion brain is really big, the thinking brain flips its lid or goes offline. and um, the other, the other aspect of it, which is separate is when you're going through a traumatic response. So that explains the thing I just did explains why they can't remember to do their chores, why they're having trouble remembering yesterday. It's that their thinking brain was offline for most of the day. Cause they were in the red or the green zone. And especially when you're dissociated dissociated brains really struggle with confusion and memory troubles. The other issue is for people who don't remember traumatic memories, those memories are not formed the same way that other memories are. Like if I were to say to a person, what'd you eat for breakfast? And they'd be like, oh, I don't know, like toast, jam, orange juice. I think I had an egg. That memory just shows up. But if I were to say, ask a person about something traumatic, tell me about this thing that happened to you. Their brain would be like, oh God, I, we try not to think about that. Um, I remember it was dark. I remember the smell. Oh my God, I'm, I'm remembering how I feel. I'm remembering how I feel. Nope, I'm not going there. And the brain goes through a very, very different 
set of retrievals because traumatic memories are actually stored in your fight and flight center. And that's for a very good reason because it wants to remember all of the context, like who was around, what did it smell like? What did it look like? Where did this happen? Because it's trying to protect you from future danger. So your danger memories are stored in the danger center in order to bring that memory up very quickly and remind you of future danger. And so it's not stored as a linear narrative memory. It's stored as bits of sensory information. It's stored along with the emotions and physical sensations that you had at the time. And that's how triggers happen. So you can get triggered, which brings the emotions and physical sensations of the time back in real time because you're accessing that memory and any context will pull it up. So for people who do trauma processing, what we do in processing is we dissociate all of that. We take away the narrative of the event from the emotions and physical sensations and context. And it's actually crazy easy to do. I can't believe how easy it is. So if you guys have therapy that's accessible, um, trauma processing is things like accelerated resolution therapy, brain spotting, EMDR. Um, I was just going to say that reminds me of EMDR. Yeah. Prolonged exposure. I'm not a huge fan because there's like way nicer ways to do it than exposure. I don't love pure exposure therapies because it's kind of mean. So there's way nicer ways to do. Um, I actually think EMDR is a bit of a prolonged exposure. I'm not the biggest fan. There's way more current therapies where you can process this stuff. And then your memories actually come back and they come back more like linear things that don't bother you. You're like, oh yeah, I can think about that now. And it doesn't yes. bring emotions. Yes. So it's, it's really incredible to, to go through processing and kiddos can do it too. Um, there's, there's lots of ways you can process with kiddos. My last slide today is going to be some of the things we may or may not have time. I'm happy to keep doing questions. Um, MMT. Uh, what's an MT? I don't know that. Did you see that in the chat somewhere? Um, oh, Rachel, I'm so sorry. Through my gosh. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. And then I got my nephew who is severely child abuse right after that. But it oh actually helps me get out of bed every day. So um, yeah. I, I tell you what, he was not touched with me or else it probably would have been way worse. Um, but I'm, it's, I think it's neurosequential. Oh, let me look it up just because my nephew has significant trauma. Um, I just Googled it. And I, the, the thing that's showing up is neurosequential network. I'm, I'm not, yes, I don't know about it. it. Yeah. Um, okay. I, I think it includes brain mapping. Uh, yes. It's a Bruce Perry, I think. Yeah. Bruce yeah, Perry. Oh, Bruce Perry. Yeah. yeah. He wrote a really good book with Oprah called what happened to you. Yes. Um, I highly recommend it. It's, it's a great book. Yeah, the um, other one, um, the boy who's raised like a dog is amazing as well. Yes, yes, for sure. Oh my gosh, thank you for that, Rachel. Um, I know we have to move on. I just want to read one more comment. Someone says, I have a diagnosis of fibromyalgia and I truly believe most of fibromyalgia is the body's response to complex trauma. I think a lot of our physical ailments, do you, do you agree? 
that is my second book. So my, um, if, if, if this goes well, my second book is the connection to trauma and chronic pain. And my third book is the connection of trauma to addiction. Um, it's all the same pathways. So yeah, um, mind body syndrome is something that was created by, um, Dr. Sarno, John Sarno, and then Howard Schubiner kind of picked it up and I've done their training programs, 100% the same pathways for chronic pain, acute pain. Remember how I said the vagus nerve tells your brain what your body is up to. That's the acute pain signal, chronic pain signal. So that's a sensation. So your, your sensation is happening in the body. Your vagus nerve is saying to your brain, Hey, there's a sensation down here. That's acute pain. Chronic pain is a perception. It's a brain pathway. And it's in the brain. It's not even in the body. It's in the brain. And that's why you can get things like phantom limb pain where your limb has been cut off and you're still having pain in it. So perceptions are the same exact pathway that I'm describing and the same exact things work for it. So I've been doing lots with, um, Stephen Porges has a safe and sound protocol, which is filtered music that you can listen to. And then I also use brain spotting. Um, there's tons of things you can do for chronic pain that's in the same. And for people who've been through trauma, anything that feels dangerous, including the signals from inside the body, not just the signals from outside the body, any dangerous signal inside the body, your brain's gonna turn up the volume dial and say, did you hear this danger? You better pay attention to this. And anything that seems dangerous, the volume dial is gonna go right up to 10. So that's why people who've been through trauma have more chronic pain and more of what we call interoception, which is more signals coming up, telling you what your body's up to, because it's always like scanning for danger. So yes, that's all totally connected. And kiddos who have anxiety symptoms and they somatize it. So it shows up like physical symptoms. Yes. That's the, that's that pathway. It's like, I'm used to scanning for danger and I'm going to scan yes. too. It's yes. the protective mechanism. And we always pathologize it and say, what's wrong with this person? They're just, they have belly pain and there's nothing wrong with them. Yes. Of course they have something wrong with them. The signal pathways, you know, amped up, it's got too much volume and you got to turn the volume dial down, which is super easy to do. Oh, interesting. One more thing before we move on. Someone says, I went through all of that with PTSD for combat. I did graduate per se from most of the things I went through, but some things just cannot be erased. And I think that's a valid point. And I often tell foster parents that with regarding their kiddos from trauma or their, their trauma from their adoption, well, they processed it. Well, your, their brain is constantly growing, constantly changing. They will probably reprocess that several times throughout their life and yeah there may be things that just we don't get processed that's not my experience I do believe that there is a way to process everything and um I've seen incredible work with vets um who do psychedelic therapy so that's something that is so far outside the box that people are really afraid of it um, but it, it can give you that reset. Um, so I think I, I don't say that there's anything that can't be processed. I, I think we, the human brain is capable of processing everything. It's just a matter of finding the right tools. So, um, when I, when I learned accelerated resolution therapy, it was through the occupational stress injury clinic, and they were working with vets and first responders and they had 21 patients who hadn't responded to any kind of therapy, everything that they had tried, 
And 21 of the 21 responded to accelerated resolution therapy. Wow. And, um, yeah. So I, I do think it, it can be processed. I don't give up on anybody. That's amazing. We do have requests in the chat to keep you in their pocket at all times. As in, <laughs> <laughs> if I that, like if... my book is very solution focused. Um, okay, we're still on slide one, guys. We got lots to go. Um, so we're just going to do a very quick experiment. Um, this is one I call the bicycle, and this is something you can do with the kiddos, well, kiddos who can ride a bike. Um, so what we're going to do is just do a really quick imaginal exercise of those different nervous system states. So the red zone, the green zone, and the blue zone. And what it looks like is the blue zone is imagining riding your bike on the flats. And you're on this really lovely pathway. Maybe you're going by a lake or a reservoir and there's beautiful trees and you can hear the birds chirping and the pedals are just pedaling themselves. Your body feels super comfortable on the bike and you're cruising. You feel really safe and really secure. And this is what the blue zone feels like on the bicycle. What it looks like when we are in the red zone is when we've got a bit of a hill. So there is effort and we just give ourselves a bit of a hill on the bicycle and we're pedaling and it's taking a lot more of our muscles. So you can feel your thighs engaging and your butt muscles are clenching and you're having to work harder because you're trying to move the bike up the hill. And it's not so steep that we can't get there, but it's taking a lot of effort and we can feel our heart pounding and we're sweating a little bit and maybe we're clenching our jaw. And that's the bicycle putting in more effort. And that's our red zone. That's our high tone sympathetic nervous system kicking in to help us get up the hill. And now we're going to imagine coasting down the hill and we're going kind of quickly. We're not putting any effort at all. In fact, your feet are kind of not moving on the pedals anymore and things are just kind of whizzing by you and you can't really see what's around. You're just feeling a little more disconnected from it all. You're not really moving, things are going by you're a part of it and you're not really a part of it. And it's just around you. It's kind of hard to focus on it. It's just really going by. And that's a little experience of that green zone. So even just imagining yourself on a bicycle can help you get an embodied experience of what those three zones feel like. Did that work for everybody? Does anyone want to tell me how that experience felt? Psychedelic mushrooms. Yeah, I don't do, I don't recommend psychedelics on your own, um, but psychedelic guided journeys, whew, they can be super powerful. Not for kids, kids, kids brains, which, and your brain is a kid until you're 24. <laughs> so yeah. adolescence actually ends at 24. No drugs until 24. <laughs> it changes your brain in ways that are very unpredictable. Um, that includes marijuana. So yeah, until age 24, no drugs. But after that, 
guided psychedelic journeys can be really powerful. Does anyone want to say how their experience on the bike felt? Um, it made a lot of sense to me. Um, the blue zone seems to be where you need to, be, where everyone is talking about how you have to be mindful and you have to take in what's going on around you. And I think, you know, like I can, I can see myself have living, lived in the green zone for years and years and years and years and years. I've been present, but not present. And so it's good to correlate my own situations so that I can be more mindful of my kiddos situations and what they're going yeah. through for sure, because they're in the red zone and the green zone probably all of the time. Yeah, you've got it. Okay, let's keep going. So um, when we're talking about those three nervous systems, the first infographic that I show makes sense because there's low, medium, high. But the way the nervous system works, according to Dr. Porges, is the, the easy bike on the flats, ventral vagal system, where you're calm and you're coping and you're interacting with people easily, is at the top of the ladder. And so for you to move from dorsal into sympathetic requires movement. So for, for you to get from green, disconnect into red, means that you need to move. And the starting part of movement is imagining movement. And then it's really small movement. Like it could be texting a friend or, um, you know, listening to music. I'll, we'll get into that a little bit more. I think music is a big piece of it. So any kind of movement moves you into sympathetic because remember sympathetic isn't just fight and flight. It's anytime you move your body, you're in sympathetic. And then to move from sympathetic to ventral requires connection, which is why we say the opposite of addiction or loneliness or all these things, the opposite, what gets you into that blue zone is connection. So anytime that you're feeling a connection to the kiddos is where you're giving them experiences of ventral vagal and ventral vagal is something we have to practice. So once we get out of dorsal with some small amounts of movement, and then we find ourselves being able to connect to other humans, animals, or nature. For some nervous systems, humans are totally unsafe and they are not gonna connect with you. And an animal or nature might feel a little bit safer and you can connect to any of those living systems. So connection is what gets you into the blue zone. So if you find a kiddo really, really disconnected, um, you know, playing in the sand, learning how to garden, having a safe pet around is something that might get them that connection that they can cope with. So that's how we climb up what's called the polyvagal ladder. So Deb Dana is the clinician for Stephen Porges's science. And Deb Dana is the one who came up with the ladder and I just kind of made it a bit prettier than her, her drawings. Does anyone have questions about the ladder? Okay, we're gonna keep moving on. So I'm gonna read out loud a sample kiddo. We're gonna call him Trey. And what I want you guys to do is to pay attention to the story I'm telling 
And notice, what do you think Trey's nervous system state is? Do you think he's in the blue, red, or green zone? And which aspects of the story help you decide? So you don't have to take notes, just kind of remember a word or two. So Trey is a 13-year-old kid who arrived to your home a week ago. He's been having lots of trouble sleeping. He wakes up with night terrors. And one time you found him mumbling in the kitchen, but it seemed like he was still asleep. In the morning, he complains that his legs hurt. You've been wondering if he has growing pains, but he also seems to have pain in his jaw and he complains that his teeth ache. Trey has been on and off medication for ADHD. He's not on them at present because the doctors noticed his blood pressure was so high while he was on them. And he still seems pretty restless and agitated. He has difficulty finishing tasks, even though he seems to want to. Mealtimes are also really difficult for Trey. He prefers mushy foods like Kraft dinner, mashed potatoes, white rice, anything else makes him nauseated. Tell me what nervous system state do you think Trey is in and why? That's your hint. <laughs> Which aspects of the story told you about where Trey was? Feel free to unmute and yeah. speak. Or pop it in the chat. Or Either pop it in the chat, chat. yeah. The jaw pain and the muscle pain. Yeah, yeah. So Trish, what's that telling you about his nervous system state? It's, it's in fight or flight, it's, it's high tone. Bang, you've got it, awesome. Well, guess what? Uh, yeah, all of this is revealing so much about myself. Um, I've literally had people ask me if I had pain in my jaw. And I had no idea that at number one, I had it. Number two, it showed. Yeah. I yeah. also, I'm going to, I'll just briefly say, uh, I always had a childhood memory of being at a friend's house and her father, it, it, who I knew forever, you know, gentle, sweet man, went to put his hand on my shoulder. And I don't remember exactly what I did to react, but he said, oh, my gosh, what is the matter? Like it, it, he didn't quite say it in a mean way, but I remember his response to my response was shocking that I didn't realize I reacted, but evidently I was in such high tone that I completely jumped and it, it shocked him. So I, it, it stuck in my mind. <laughs> I'm sure there was way more than that, but I remember that. And it's just, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And we're not talking about trauma as a whole today because, you know, Renee thought you guys were pretty up on trauma, but what you're describing is hypervigilance. And as it relates yeah. to the polyvagal theory, it's like scanning the environment constantly for danger. So you're scanning your internal environment and you're scanning your external environment. And lots of kiddos are jumpy and they startle easy. I didn't put that in Trey's story, but it's very likely he does that too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What else did you guys notice in Trey's story that made you wonder if he was stuck in sympathetic red zone? Uh, 
Oh, somebody said inability to sleep. Yeah. So that's probably the restless brain can't turn the brain off. There's 50 thoughts in there and none of them are good. So a lot of people do like worst case scenario thinking at nighttime. Well, what if these people turn out to be unsafe? What if this happens? What if I get bullied tomorrow? Um, what if, um, you know, like their brain is just constantly in that danger zone, thinking of all the worst possible things that could happen and ruminating about the past. So either they're ruminating about past danger or imagining future danger. And that is the stuck, restless, sympathetic brain. Anything else? Uh, wanted to do tasks, but couldn't focus on them. Night yeah. terrors. Someone says, yeah. I wonder if the soft textured food is better for him to digest because it takes less work. His body is working hard scanning for danger and trying to protect him. Great point. Yeah. And um, you've got half of it. So things that are really a struggle for the brain to do is a part of the, um, the stress response, but your parasympathetic nervous system is in charge of digestion, elimination. So kids can get really constipated or they can get terrible diarrhea and your immune system. So your digestive tract, the elimination issues and your immune system shut down when you're locked in sympathetic. And then you end up with diagnoses like IBS and you're like, why do I catch a cold every two weeks? It's because your immune system is never on. So your immune system can only be on if part of your parasympathetic system is engaged. And for people who are locked into the sympathetic, your digestive tract shuts down. And one really easy way to engage your parasympathetic system is having small sips of water all day. So I have a water bottle next to me. And when I was doing hospital-based work, one of the tricks for me was I went to the bathroom on the hour and I drank water every 10 minutes. And that just activated my parasympathetic system. And you can have a better balance with it just by something that simple. Just reminding yourself to drink water, water, nothing flavored, which I'll do. So we're going to launch into, oh, where's my, there we go. Informations. So Renee mentioned this, this is one of my favorite tools that I use with all my patients. So we went through those what ifs that were running through poor Trey's brain when he was trying to get to sleep. And what if statements are affirmations and affirmations are positive versions. So you've all heard of affirmations. Affirmations is, um, this home is a sanctuary. Um, love lives here. I can do anything. I am safe. Those are affirmations. If your brain doesn't believe any of that, those affirmations are going to feel pretty lousy because it's going to be like, am I lying to myself? Like, this feels like I'm lying. Affirmations are a gentle step downwards from affirmations. It's asking those same exact scenarios with a what if. What if love lives here? What if this home is a sanctuary? What if I can do anything? What if right here I am safe? And when you put the words what if in front of it, you're planting a seed of possibility. 
instead of an affirmation, which often feels like a lie. And if even the what if feels like too much, what if I'm starting to believe that I could be safe? What if I'm starting to believe in the potential that I could be safe? Like you can give yourself as much distance from it as possible, but you're still planting a seed. And all the brain needs to heal is to stop going straight down the path to danger. So if you're going straight down the path to, I'm never safe, everything is dangerous, to what if I could feel safe? Even that seed of possibility is giving you mental flexibility to rewire your brain. And that's all trauma work is, is brain rewiring. And the more that you can provide flexibility to the traumatized brain is how you rewire it. It's, it's really that simple. So I just wanted to ask, can anyone else think of any other informations that might be helpful for Trey? While people are typing, I just want to, I just, I think affirmations are so incredible. I mean, we've all seen, I'll try these affirmations, but you're right. There's a part of me that's like, it's really not true. I'm like, I'm saying it over and over, but I'm not believing it. And this, what if gives you that little bit of permission almost to believe it. Someone says, awesome concept. Wow. Where is this word from information? It's, it's a playoff of affirmation. Yes, it is. Yeah. And it's not mine, although I will be the first person publishing it, which is interesting. So it, it hasn't been published. Nobody's even done a blog post about it. So one of the training programs that I learned to change your, your nervous system state into the blue zone is called havening. And we probably won't have time to do it today, but if we do a second uh, series, we can, I can go into a lot of the tremoring and the havening and all these things I've learned to get you into the blue zone. Um, and in havening practice, one of the things that we learned was called informational havening. And I was like, wow, these are two different skill sets. And I just want to share both of them. So um, informations are something that I use separately and I use it with every modality that I teach. Cause I think when you're trying to rewire the nervous system, informations are a super powerful tool. And then Justine, I'm seeing that you're asking about snacking a lot. Yeah. So that's a person trying to engage their parasympathetic system. Um, and if you're eating healthy snacks throughout the day, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's what I did on night shifts to get through it. My, like I didn't, it wasn't until I started to understand like nervous systems and I did a, a blood pressure monitor. My, my nerve, my blood pressure was 220 on 110 on a night shift when I was in the emergency room. Like I could have stroked out at any minute. So I started to snack and drink water and that rebalanced my nervous systems a bit better. And then eventually I had to quit. One more follow-up. Someone had asked, how does this play out in infants and pre-verbal toddlers? Yeah, um, we, we, do, we, we can't say for sure, but there's like, so pre-verbal memories are, are stored as um, implicit memory, which is nothing that you can ever verbalize. Interestingly, you can access them with subconscious work, some of which I do, and psychedelics. So there are ways to access perinatal and pre-verbal memories, but it's, it's very out there. We're still learning a lot about it. Um, so the baby would either be disengaged and flat affect. So not seeming to want to engage in the world 
or just screaming all the time and really high tone. So a baby who's been through preverbal trauma or perinatal trauma, um, a lot of those cortisol hormones are passed through the umbilical cord to babe. Um, they can have those same reactions. And some of the somatic stuff that I do, you can totally do on a baby. So havening, the one that I just mentioned, you can do that to babies. It feels awesome. And some of you probably naturally do it. Like anytime that you just really, really softly run your fingertips across a baby's forehead, that is havening. But we can go into that on another day if there's interest. Okay, so example two is a little one named Shay. So Shay is an eight-year-old girl who arrived at your home less than a week ago. She seems extremely sweet, speaking in a very high pitch and always attentive. From the moment she arrived, she's been clearing the dishes from the table and offering to help cook, even though she barely reaches the countertop. It's hard to wake Shay up in the morning. She seems dozy and disoriented. One morning, she even seemed confused, putting orange juice in her cereal instead of milk. Her favorite thing to do is to play Roblox. It seems like she could do it for 10 hours a day, and she gets panicky when you take her tablet away. She also scrolls through YouTube videos watching kids rate the Roblox animals. She has a note from school saying that she doesn't seem to be paying attention in class, and she refuses to participate in phys ed. When you look through her records, she's gained 15 pounds in the last year. And you notice that she's often gazing off into the distance, even when she's playing her game. So what tells you about Shay's nervous system state? Again, feel free to unmute or put in the chat. Here's your hand. <laughs> Green, disassociated. Is it dissociate or disassociate? It's dissociate. I don't. Okay. I don't know where disassociate comes from. Lots of people say it, but it's not a word. Okay. Not paying attention, gaining weight. Yeah. Yeah. So her body is floppy and immobile. So, um, does anyone have any thoughts on her? clearing the dishes and wanting to help cook and being very attentive. How does that relate to the green zone? And there's a, there's a word for it that some of you might know. Okay. Somebody said avoiding conflict. That would definitely avoid conflict if you're helping a lot. Um, let's see what else comes in. There's a, there's a trauma response. It starts with an F. So fight, flight, freeze. And oh, is it fawn? Yes. Yeah. So she's fawning. And so fawning is one of the things that happens in the green zone. Um, it's, it's kind of a safety mechanism to try to be people pleasing. And so it's very, very passive. I'm going to be passive and meet everyone else's needs. I don't have needs. Needs? No, I don't have needs. Don't worry about me. I'm fine. So I bet a lot of you fawn. I know I do. A lot of people in the caregiving professions fawn. My adopted daughter does quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm not checking in on the chat as often because it's kind of shutting down my video. So just if there's anything in the chat, I should be hearing Renee, if you could let me yep, know. Yep. We'll do. We'll do. Awesome. So what informations could be helpful for Shay? 
what could be nice to help rewire her nervous system. I'll start out with a couple. The, the ones that I love and I just use with all beings, child to adults, I work with people in their seventies. Um, what if I could be safe? What if I could live here without being afraid? What if I don't need to tune out? What if I could be here with the people who care about me? So those are planting seeds of possibility for Shay. Someone says, what if my needs were important? Oh, beautiful. Love that. One million yeses. What if my needs mattered? What if yeah. I matter? What if I were loved no matter what? Oh, I'm going to cry. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> beautiful. Yeah. What if I don't need to be so helpful in order to be loved? I bet that hits home to lots of us. Yeah. So um, we have got 40 minutes left. Does anyone need a bio break before I get into the second half of this? Or can you just take bio breaks off, off sync and just kind of do your thing? Everyone's like, keep going, keep going. Okay. <laughs> um, so we're going to talk a little bit about solutions next. So there are top-down solutions and there are bottom-up solutions to these dysregulated nervous systems. So does anyone have any thoughts about what top-down and bottom-up might mean? I think I hinted a while back. Is there anything showing up in the chat, Renee? Not yet. Okay, let's do it. Top down is cognitive therapy. So where the brain sends new signals to the body. So top down needs a thinking brain. Bottom up is when the body sends new signals to the brain. Guess which one is the easier doorway to get through when you've been through trauma? Bottom up? Yep. Because your thinking brain goes offline if you're yeah. in the green in the deep red zone. And guess which therapy is offered by almost every therapy company? Top, top, top down. down. <laughs> yep. Everyone wants to do CBT. So yep. everything in Canada that's free, sponsored by the government, sponsored by the EAPs, everything is CBT. And guess which is the hardest thing to access when your brain has been through trauma? That thinking brain that's going to, so CBT yeah. is cognitive behavior therapy where you examine your thought processes that are wrong. So I have another huge problem with that because it's very shaming. Well, which of your thought processes are wrong? That's BS. Which of your thought processes are trying to protect you in ways that have unintended consequences is a much better way to ask the question. Your thinking brain is always trying to protect you. It's not thinking wrong. It's thinking things that assume there's danger that may or may not be there. So the premise of CBT, I have huge problems with, and I'm not saying I never use it. I'm trained in it. I sometimes use it, but CBT can shame the thinking brain and the thinking brain is not always accessible. 
So what I love are bottom-up therapies. It is my all-time favorite thing. Um, and that's what I spent like five years of my life learning was like the alphabet soup of bottom-up therapies. And if we do a second session, I will go through lots of them with you because they are so easy to learn. I can teach bunches of them in two hours. And what we're going to do next is Jeopardy. <laughs> this is awesome. where I really need you guys to kick in with some participation. And if you don't, that's totally okay. I'll just go through the board. But um, this is the Jeopardy that I created. So I, I've got a master's in medical education. And I know that if I just like talked at you for two straight hours, most of you would be in the green zone. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm trying to keep you in the blue zone as much as possible. Play and intimacy are blue zone activities. So play is your sympathetic nervous system because it's a little bit of movement and it's your blue zone because you're safely connected. So play is a combination of the blue and the red zones. And anytime you're playing safely with the kiddos, you're engaging their sympathetic nervous system in a safe way, which is what this game does. Intimacy is a combination of the blue and the gray zones. And when you're feeling like you can snuggle with somebody that is letting your body be vulnerable in the green zone while you're feeling connected in the blue zone. So play and intimacy are ways that you can access those different nervous system states in safe and connected ways. So this is us accessing your blue, your calm zone and your red, your active zone. So who wants to pick Anyone can pick, but if nobody does, I'm gonna pick somebody who's been participating and you can choose the box. Um, we're gonna do it in teams. So the SEAL team is anyone whose oldest kiddo in the household is male or identifies as a boy. And the dolphin team is anyone whose oldest kiddo in the household right now is female or identifies as a girl. And if you've got a gender fluid kiddo, pick a team, I don't care. Um, so out, does, guys, when, yeah, go ahead. Somebody says aces aren't so nice for 100. Awesome. This is what ACE stands for. So ACE stands for three different words. Does anyone know? Feel free to unmute. Adverse childhood events. Yes. Te technically experiences, but I'm going to give that to you. Are you on the girls or the boys team? Uh, I'm a dolphin girl. <laughs> okay, 100 for the girls. So childhood experiences is a study that came out in 1999, which I'll date myself as the year I graduated med school. So I didn't learn any of this. I didn't know about ACEs or epigenetics and that anything you've been through in childhood permanently changes your brain and might even change your brain for the next generation. So that's pretty important research that I didn't learn. Adverse childhood experiences. Awesome, beautifully done, dolphin team. So whoever just got that right, pick the next one. Okay. Random facts for 300. Nice, I like the randomness. Mm -hmm. What event prompted 
the medical and scientific literature to start recognizing and defining PTSD? Vietnam War. Boom. Are you the dolphin? I know way too much about this. Oh my gosh. Are you your dolphin, right? I'm a dolphin, yeah. Okay, so you just got 300. Oh, you're supposed to answer it like Jeopardy, but whatever. <laughs> I totally forget that too. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you get to pick the next one. Okay, I'm on a roll. Let's do top down for 400. Ooh. Come on, seals. What part of the brain responds to trauma as a reflex? We've talked about this one in my talk. What is limbic system? Not quite. Seals? Not quite. It's a brain structure. I mentioned it a couple times. It's where the fire is. We've got Woo. yes. Who is that? April. <laughs> are you on the girls' team or the boys' team? I'm a seal. Okay, four hundred seals are on the board. Oh, we're tied. <laughs> that was that was four hundred. So you guys are tied now. Woohoo! Okay, seals. So so whoever got that one right, please choose the next category. Um, I will go. What happens in Vegas for two hundred, please? I love that heading. I know, right? The polyvagal theory describes how many branches of your vagus nerve. Two, somebody says. Yep. What is two? Yep. So which team was that person? Jennifer, what team are you on? The dolphins. Yay. Okay. So that is 200 more for dolphins. So dolphins are in the lead. And Jennifer, can you please choose our next category? Can we do top down for 200? Ooh, this is a tricky one. We haven't talked about it yet. What does IFS stand for? Is it internal family systems? Ooh, yes. Wow, that was impressive. (laughs) Yeah, so I'll just tell you a little bit about it. This is a cognitive therapy that includes a lot of feeling into the subconscious states. So internal family systems is kind of like having a conversation with the voices in your head. And many times when you've been through trauma, the voices in your head are the ones who got stuck at the event. So if you have a little girl inside you who's really afraid of dogs, that little girl was probably the one who was attacked by a dog or scared by a dog. And so when we're accessing those younger parts of ourselves that feel they're stuck in the red or the green zones, we can actually have conversations with them. And we can say, oh, little one, I know you're trying to protect me by being really afraid, but I can keep us safe. And you as an adult can have a conversation with these younger parts of us. So that's internal family systems therapy. I love it. I use it all the time. But first, I have to get a person into their thinking brain in order to try doing it. Okay. So that 200, which team did that one go to? Seals. Seals. Oh, my gosh. We are still tied. This is really fun. This never happens. Um, And so please pick the next category. Uh, What happens in Vegas for 300? The Vegas nerve sends most of its signals in which direction? What is the body? 
Excellent. From the body nice. to the brain. Well done. Which team are you on? The Dolphins. Okay. So Dolphins just got 300. And please pick your next category. Um, aces aren't so ace for 200. The ACE study came out in what year? Does anyone remember? I just said it. Somebody said 99. What is 99? Nice. Yep. Sandy, you were first on that. Sandy, which team are you on? Seals, she says. Okay, so that's 200 more to the Seals. Oh, gosh, guys, it's a close race. Okay, Sandy, please pick your next category. You can type it in if you'd like. Bottom up for 500. Ooh, what part of your brain does EMDR, ART, accelerated resolution therapy, and brain spotting have in common? What part of your brain or what part of your body? Body. Body. Okay. And what, are your, what are your eyes? Boom. That was a good one. Okay. So what team was that one I'm from? Seals. Seals for 500. Wow. Well done. That was excellent. So all three of those therapies use the eyes and I think of them as body-based therapies, even though your thinking brain has to do some work, I think of all three of those as somatic therapies and excellent doorways into trauma processing. Um, I do both ART and brain spotting and I get phenomenal results. And I will just shout out right now, I do not take patients. I work at the refugee clinic and the addiction clinic and I, I am, and then I write books. <laughs> And uh, we're actually starting a program to, to create uh, online training for um, trauma-informed organizations. So that's what I'm up to. So who did that last 500? Jan, um, was that you? Uh, yes. All right. Where are we going? What category would you like to pick? Oh, boy. Um, 300 for bottoms up. What is the full name of EFT? And there's actually two answers, but the one I'm looking at is the body-based one. Does anyone know this one? What is emotional freedom technique? Oh, yes. So this is also called tapping. And tapping is based on ancient Chinese medicine. It's basically self acupressure. So you tap on the meridian points related to energy and it's based on 10,000 year old technology and it absolutely works. It's evidence-based treatment for trauma responses. I can get really deep with a person using tapping. So when I was you know, a boring doctor at a boring family medicine clinic and someone told me that tapping was helpful for emotions, I would have laughed at them. And five years later, I get amazing results using EFT tapping with my patients. It's one of the things I teach them to help them stay in the blue zone. So it's a really amazing volume dial when the emotions are too high. Is that something that has to be done with a, a, a therapist or can we learn how to do it? I can teach you if you guys want to do a somatic 
Um, so I can teach this tapping to you in 20 minutes. It's really easy. There's also a free book. Um, like literally EFT International has like a 40 page book. There are books that you can buy. Um, none of them written by doctors or psychologists, interestingly enough, that show you how to do EFT tapping on your own. But if you do a session with me so you can see it live and you buy a book, easy peasy. Or you, I, can, um, I can send Renee the free download and she can put it in your handouts. I also wow. have a free download of the tapping points, but like my preference would be for me to teach it to you guys first before I gave you those downloads. Yeah. It's much easier to have it demoed. Let's so do it in our next session. That was, that was 300. Um, who got that last one? A seal. Seals. Okay. So we have a fork in the road at this point. We've got 24 minutes together left. I could do some small demos of these bottom-ups or we could leave it for our next session and we could clear the board. Um, I want sure demos or the board? Know. Put it in the chat, guys. And it would be really quick demos. I would do much better doing demos for two hours, but. Everybody, we're seeing demos, demos, demos. Okay. This was fun though. We have never had a game like this before. This was super fun. Awesome. Let me go back into the PowerPoint. So um, let's find out who won. I think it was team boys just from that last one though. That was a very hard guess. So you guys were doing awesome. So 400, 700 for the girls. Yeah, the boys did win. Um, yeah, so team seals, I think was the one who won, but you guys were neck and neck for right up until the very end. And the very end, we had a couple really tough ones that pulled the seals into the lead. So congrats guys. Um, this next is an experience uh, that's very, very basic and so easy to learn. So a lot of people are taught that breath work is something you should teach everybody. But in my experience, breath work, when you don't engage the thinking brain, just lets the thinking brain wander into like unsafe territory. So if you're just telling somebody to breathe, sometimes their thinking brain's like, yeah, I'm going to breathe, but I'm also going to think about danger at the same time. And then breathing exercise doesn't actually make them feel any safer. What I had mentioned is that the parasympathetic nervous system and the sympathetic nervous system are in charge of different parts of your breath cycle. So if you are in the red zone and your sympathetic nervous system has got you overactive, the part of your breath cycle that you want to emphasize is your exhale. So you wanna do different breath techniques depending on which part of your nervous system is overactive. If you are high activation, restless, high tone, energetic nervous system, you want to emphasize the exhales. So all you have to do is pay attention to your own breath and breathe out longer than in. If you are in the green zone and you find that yourself, your, your body is more dissociated, disconnected, shut down, then the part of your body that you're gonna to want to engage is the activated nervous system. And that's going to look like a longer inhale. 
So when people say, oh, do breath work, it's going to look different depending on your nervous system state. And one of the most important things about the nervous system states is noticing which one you're in. And once you notice it, then the techniques are to shift it. So when I say find your voice, it's different for every person. It might even be different for you depending on the time of the day and what's happening around you. So when you're in the green zone, you're going to want to lengthen your inhale. And when you're in the red zone, you're going to want to lengthen your exhale. Does anyone have any questions before I move to the next piece of this? Can you be in both? Um, you can't be in overdrive of both at the same time, um, but you can definitely have elements of both. Yeah. Um, so what I tend to do with people is to let them know anytime that you're singing or humming, you're not just increasing your exhale, because if you think about singing and humming, you're always having a longer exhale than inhale. So singing and humming are incredible techniques to get you out of the red zone. And it's easy and it's playful. So when you're finding your voice from a red zone perspective and you find yourself in high tone agitation, singing and humming increase your exhale which will naturally engage your parasympathetic system again. Same as when you take sips of water or snack. So singing and humming are also extra awesome because your lung cavity runs up against your vagus nerve on the back end of your body. So remember it was called dorsal vagal. Your lungs are surrounded by something that's kind of like a Ziploc bag. It's a membrane called the pleura and the pleura touches your vagus nerve in the back of your body. So the vagus nerve runs between your spinal cord, the vertebrae and the pleura of your lungs. So if you vibrate your vagus nerve through humming or singing, or even talking, you actually remodulate your vagus nerve. So what I always tell my patients to do is to make playlists based on their polyvagal states. So you would make a playlist for when you're in the red zone and you want to get rid of some of that energy. So if you haven't learned how to tremor, one of the things that you can do is make a polyvagal playlist for being in the red zone. And you might scream, you might have really high energy activation. It makes you jump and dance around. And that's going to help you burn off the sympathetic tone and vibrate your vagus nerve. You can also make a polyvagal playlist for the green zone, but you're gonna want it to be more mellow. So it's gonna be more matching the zone that you're in. And what you would do is hum or sing along with that playlist as well. So I always tell people make two different playlists and notice the state of your body, the nervous system state and decide which belongs in each playlist. So I'm just gonna invite you guys to shout into the chat what kinds of songs? So, so name a green zone or a red zone song for you that would go in your playlist. Just start to think about it. Extra points if it's a Taylor Swift song. Well, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Somebody says heading to Spotify right now. Let's see what we come up with. Somebody said moon shadow for green zone. Oh yeah, that's beautiful. Red, shake it off. Uh-huh, absolutely. <laughs> Snaps for Taylor's lips. <laughs> oh. Nice. So you guys get the idea. The idea is when you understand polyvagal theory, the clue is to notice your nervous system state first and then decide, do I need to move into movement because I'm in green or do I need to move into connection because I'm in red? Do I need to um, lengthen my inhale or my exhale? So noticing your nervous system state is the first step and then shifting it with a deliberate practice is the second step. And there's lots of easy things you can teach the kiddos around that. So we have started to talk about imagery, the language of the subconscious mind, where these nervous system states are kind of dictated is imagery and metaphor. This is why a lot of cognitive top-down therapies aren't as successful because imagery and metaphor is the language of your subconscious brain where these reflexes happen. So when we did the bike metaphor, that was using imagery. I do things like using a tree, using a river. So could you get the river to be fast or slow moving? Is there an obstruction in the river, like a beaver dam, and you have to clear the dam out? That's a beautiful image to get you out of the green zone. Clearing out the dam, clearing out the trees and all the obstructions in the river and letting the river flow. The other image I use with a river is every single emotion that you have is like a leaf floating down the river. Let it flow through. Don't let it get stuck or clouds in the sky. These are all imagery exercises that you can do to activate that subconscious mind below the level of the thinking brain. We've talked about breath work. Dancing and playing are beautiful ways to access the combination of the red and the blue nervous system states. So you can't necessarily combine green and red but you can combine blue and red or blue and green. So these are the ones we've talked about. These are the ones we haven't talked about yet. So um, we could take a vote in the chat. We've got 14 minutes left today. I could demo havening. I could demo tapping. I think those are two good choices for those 15 minutes. Which would you like? Pop it in the chat. And we'll just go with whatever gets majority. There's one tapping and one what's havening, havening. If you, um, so havening is delta wave therapy or gentle touch therapy. Really easy to use on kiddos. Okay. I'm it seeing, looks like havening, yep. Okay. Um, my arrow keeps disappearing. Okay, there we go. So I'm going to come off share screen. So um, whoever's in charge of IT, are you able to pin my screen? 
not sure if I can do it. I could try. Oh, yes, I can. Okay. okay. I'm Hi, okay. everyone. <laughs> for those of you who haven't seen me for the last hour and a bit, it's nice to see you. So havening is a practice that I learned three or four years ago now. It's also called Delta Wave Therapy. And I'm going to show you why that is. So when we measure energy in the brain using an EEG, you might have heard that in the context of checking for seizures, we would attach a bunch of electrodes on the brain and say, is this person having a seizure? What's the different parts of their brain doing? There's also something called, um, I think it's called an aura band. No, it's an aura ring. There's some kind of forehead band that costs like a zillion dollars and you wear around your head and it also measures your brainwave activity and decides what's your nervous system state. One of the ways that it does it is it measures different brain waves. So when we are in the red zone and we are in a more sympathetic state and we measure those brain waves and the energy in the brain, they look like this. These are gamma waves. And so we see more gamma waves in the brain when the brain is agitated, when it's in the red zone. And when we are more calm, at rest, reconsolidating memories, chill, feeling really comfortable, our brain waves look like that. And these are delta waves. So what happens with this therapy? And it was really cool because when I did the training, they actually attached EEG bands to our foreheads and they measured it in real time. So we could actually see on a screen above the participant, what was happening is your gamma waves decrease and your delta waves, <clears throat> sorry, I'm losing my voice. Your delta waves increase. So the agitated brain waves that are restless and uncomfortable go down and the delta brain waves that are making you comfortable and very present in the moment, those go up. So Havening Touch was created by some doctors in the States and they just put a whole bunch of brainwave electrodes on people, participants in the study, and they asked them to do different activities. One of them was eye movements. So moving the eyes from side to side increases delta waves, which is one of the reasons why EMDR and ART work. So we know one of the reasons that any eye movement treatments works is this brainwave change because of the study. But what they found is that really, really simple self-touch mechanisms can also create delta waves. So that's what havening is. And so I'll, I'll go through havening with you. It's up to you if you practice or not. Don't worry about putting your camera on. You could also just watch me. So they studied different places that you can touch yourself or another person. And I'll show you how to do both because you might want to do it on the kiddos um, to lower the gamma waves and increase the delta waves. And so um, there's, it's called havening techniques. So when we practice affirmations, like an hour ago, that was one of the techniques that I learned. And so if we do another session, I can teach you another havening technique, but for today I'll teach affirmations because we already know what that is. So we're planting seeds of possibility using what if statements. 
And we are very, very gently touching three different areas. The first one is the palm of the hand. The second one is the shoulder and it goes from the shoulder to the elbow. And the third one is the face. So I don't really need glasses because I don't have to read my stuff here. So the hands create five times the delta wave compared to resting state, which is when you're asleep and the natural delta waves that happen. And if you think about it, that makes perfect sense because when we're stressed out, we tend to wring our hands or if we want to show solidarity or connection with somebody, we would hold their hand. So our bodies naturally do this. We naturally know that the hand is a place of calming. And all you do for havening is you really, really gently brush the fingers of one hand down the other. And if you're doing it to a kiddo, they would have their hand flat, maybe on their lap, and you would just do it in the other direction. So if their kids have the hands in their lap, you would just gently, gently, gently brush your fingertips across the palm to their fingertips. So that's havening on the hand. And the feeling that you might notice is kind of like a, an ice cream sensation, just like a wave of palm. So five times the delta wave on the palm of the hand compared to resting state. The shoulder, you just go like this and really, really gently. So it's not like um, a massage and it's not like brushing lint. So it's kind of halfway in between. It's like a really, really gentle brushing, kind of the way you would pet a dog or a cat. So kind of like petting. And if it's available to you, like not everyone's bodies are built in the same way. So um, if it's available to you, havening both sides at the same time. Um, one of my teachers, Kate Truitt, she's also on TikTok. Um, she calls this the moving hug. I love it. So, and the way you would do it on a kiddo. So imagine like my shoulders on the screen are the kiddo's shoulders. And so you would just take your hands and very gently brush down from the shoulders down to the elbow on the kiddo. So you can haven their shoulders as well. The shoulders kind of depends on body shape, but it's anywhere from eight to 30 times the delta waves compared to resting state. So hands were five, shoulders are eight to 30. So shoulders are pretty powerful. And if you think about it, one of the things humans do when a person is, you know, struggling is you might just rest your hand on their shoulder or pat their shoulder. We naturally know that this creates delta waves. We just didn't have the science until havening. The third place that we haven is the face. And I generally just take a couple of fingers, but you can use like all of the fingertips. I just use a couple of fingertips. When I first learned havening, they said, do it on your cheekbones. And this was the place that we learned, but they started to do more research. And they now know that havening across the eyebrows and the forehead, um, the forehead gives you just as many delta waves. So I'll get rid of my bangs for you. Middle of the forehead and eyebrows. And again, on a kiddo, it's really easy to do. You just really, really gently rub your fingertips across their forehead and their cheekbones. Moms and dads naturally do this with babies. Like 
like putting your fingers across their forehead to soothe them is something a lot of us naturally do. If you think about it, we naturally haven when we're crying. So when we're crying, we often wipe the tears away from our cheekbones. And the face havening creates 90 times the delta waves compared to resting state. So face havening is super powerful. And if you were in a meeting or talking to someone who is stressing you out and you were just rubbing your cheekbone, they would not even know you were doing havening, but you would be trying to calm your nervous system down. So before I get into the demo, does anyone have any questions about positions for havening? I'm just going to check the chat. Yeah, there's just a question on using this with uh, tactile defensive children um, and how long to perform these. I'll, I'll, I'll say how long with the demo. Tactile defensive children, I would probably have them do it on themselves. So if that feels safer. Um, you could also have them imagining doing it. So interestingly, the imagination is so powerful. When you imagine doing this, so I'll do this in the demo, but if you imagine doing this, the exact same parts of your brain light up. So even like we use it on people who have differing abilities and like even in neurodivergence where they can't handle physical touch, you can do imagining instead. Any technique that I use with a body-based technique, imagining it lights up the same brain structures. And it's not the 100% full benefit, but it's definitely a benefit. Um, alternatively, they can watch you do it. And the mirror image, the mirror neurons in their brain will fire the same thing. So if they watch you have it on yourself, their mirror image, oh, someone took my pin away. Hang on. Sorry. That's okay. I'm, um, I'm just trying to keep me pinned. The, the mirror image will, the mirror neurons will reflect the same part of their brain just watching you do it. So if they can sit still and watch you Haven, that's some benefit too. Any other questions before we do the demo? We don't have a lot of time, but I'll just do a really quick one. So if yes. someone appears hyper, lack of focus, suggest they do Havening. Actually, it works for green and red zones. Havening is good for any zone. It just brings you to a blue. And it looks like this. We're gonna use affirmations. What if I could feel my feet on the ground right now? What if I could feel my back up against the chair? What if I could look forward to what we're gonna eat for our next meal. So all of those what ifs are just bringing them into their present body, into the present room. What if I was gonna have a really good sleep tonight? What if I stayed asleep and had really easy dreams and woke up feeling really rested? What if my body knew how to sleep? So that would be affirmations using sleep on the, on the havening place of the shoulders. And then we go up here and we'll go a little deeper. So like, this is like grades, havening using grounding and place. I'm here right now, havening with a future thing around sleep 
that's a step up. And another step up might be, what if I could feel safe here? What if here is safe? What if this is a safe home? What if I could experience love? What if it would be safe to believe in love? So those are kind of deeper affirmations that you would do kind of later stage with kiddos. So first would be grounding. Second would be believing in a future. Third would be, what if I could believe that I could reset my nervous system and not spend so much time in red or green? So that's how you haven the face. And that was a really quick demo. Um, I would generally do havening for about 10 minutes. So if we do a future session, I would show you event havening, which is using guided imagery with havening. I love it. I generally do 10 to 15 minutes at a time. Um, so instead of really, really quick couple, you know, a minute in each place, which is what I do on TikTok. I just do one minute havening sessions. Um, in a real training session with a patient, I would generally do havening for 10 to 15 minutes at a time. But you have to also notice their nervous system. If there's making them more restless, jump in for two or three minutes. So if you notice their nervous system is going into red zone and they're like, it's too much, I can't sit still, just do it for a little bit. The more that we practice being in the blue zone, the better our brain gets at it. It's practicing anything, like any muscle. I really wish this was like a four hour training, honestly. You can have me back. Maybe next time. <laughs> Uh, who from my team? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Gibson. That was incredible. I, I'm so thrilled. Um, and yes, we will gladly have you back. Uh, who from Team Foster Source is walking us through our certificate real quick? Should I get going? You are welcome to hang back if you would like. Um, this just takes a second where we can show people Wow, look at the chat. <laughs> Best training ever. Thank you, guys. Yes, I felt so bad because the slides were kind of like light, but I'm like, the experience is yeah. different than the slides. So like in adult education, putting all the words on the slides isn't how adults learn. So yeah, thank you guys for, sure. for the affirmation of that. It's it's nice for me to hear. Um, and yeah, happy to see you guys another time. Follow me on TikTok. Uh, my book will be out next spring and my book is all of the things that I just described in way more detail, plus all of the solutions, tapping, tremoring, havening, all in the book. I'm so, envisioning an, maybe an in-person event with the book. What if, I'm going to do it right now. What if we host Dr. Gibson in person when her book comes out? I'm I am, yeah, I'm supposed to be doing a book <laughs> state, so I'm, I'll, I'll be there. Awesome. Thank you so much. Cool. Great to meet you guys. Thank you for participating. It was amazing. Um, thank you, little seals and dolphins. <laughs> awesome. Bye. Bye. Thank you. All right, Rach, go ahead. All right. So the verification code for the class today is TikTok 6. Can you all see that okay? Yep. And that is with a capital T, just the first T. So capital T. I K T O K six. And if one someone from our team can drop that in the chat too, that would be great.
And then now I will walk you through how to get your certificate, how to view your certificates and your handouts for this class. So today we're in the TikTok Trauma Doc training live virtual. So you'll be putting that code in there. And then you will fill out the survey. Um, I'm just gonna mark mine as completed for myself. You feel free to fill it out in as, as much or little detail as you want. We appreciate feedback about the class today, um, just so we can know what kind of trainings you guys would like to see in the future. If you like this training, which I think just about everybody did, and I know I did as well. Um, and then you can click, you make sure to click view or print your certificate and it should pop up like this. So my name, uh, ooh, I will change the text on this. I thought I did, but I didn't save it. Um, this will say TikTok trauma doc training. I will change that though. And then you can view the handouts for this class right here. We've got the presentation slides, the NSS scale, polyvagal theory tools, polyvagal theory. And then in order to see your um, certificate for this class and previous classes, make sure to go to dashboard. And then go to transcript slash achievements. And then you should see all of the certificates that you have achieved. If not, please let me know. If you have watched any of the previous ones with a spouse or partner, let me know that as well at either Rachel at learning or at fostersource.org or learning at fostersource.org. Uh, 